0: journey. You guys having a good day today? It's good to see you, happy, smiling faces, I haven't seen in a long time. Um, I, I, Mark's parents especially, thank you guys for being here, and that's very special for Mark. Um, we, I was excited to see that really cool celebration. Um, I, I concur with Josh. Um, over the years of being a, um, a disciple, I've been in a lot of churches, and I can truthfully say I've never... I don't know that I've ever been able to walk with a pastor or, as long as I've been with Mark and see a heart that is open to growth and change and development and, and sensitivity to the Holy Spirit and sensitivity to himself and the dynamics of the world and what God is doing and a big, and, and not be wrapped up in his own thing so much that he's not willing to change and transform and gro- go where the Spirit is taking us and him, and uh, that is the most gigantic blessing as someone who is pursuing Jesus himself in that same way. So, dude, thank you for being who you are and setting an example and leading us where you're leading us because it's clearly um, the direction that that God is taking. Not only us, but the body in this place and time in our our world. So thank you for that. And uh, thank you guys for being here to to celebrate um, Mark today. Now, we're, we're coming to the, we came to the end of the Beatitudes uh, last week, and we're jumping into um, the new, another section. And chances are, what we're talking about today, you've probably heard taught, if you've been in church at all for, in, in any amount of time, you've heard, or been around Christian circles, you've heard this area of Scripture and heard this area of Scripture taught. But today, the idea of being salt and light, that we are called as disciples to be salt and light in the world around us. And you've probably heard that, but today we're going to look at maybe a little bit different perspective, a little different way than what you may have heard in the past. Kind of what it really means, and maybe what you've historically heard about the subject might be different than what Jesus is actually saying. And most importantly is how we can actually be salt and light in the world and as a disciple of Jesus. But in many ways, um, this, this, this passage and this, those two metaphors, the metaphor of, of salt and of light, they're really making the same point that we're going to get to as we get close, uh, closer to the end. Um, most of you know that Jesus taught extensively using metaphor and story. And one of the most well-known and really misunderstood passages or parables or metaphors is, is this one. And the way that it has kind of been taken and and then applied throughout our culture in some ways has been kind of tragic. So today we're going to dig into that and we're going to kind of see if we can get some clarity into what exactly Jesus was saying when he says, You as my disciples are to be salt and to be light. What exactly, what was was he saying? What was his point? So let's look at that uh, area of scripture. Starting at verse uh, 13 in Matthew 5, he says... and glorify your Father in heaven. Let's pray. God, thank you for the opportunity to be here this morning. Thank you for Mark. Thank you for the celebration of his life. Thank you for the um, the man, the husband, the pastor, the friend, the everything that he is, and in, in the way that he reflects sensitivity to your spirit, and a heart to just be your disciple in the world without pretense and without... Uh, posturing that ha- com- often comes uh, with uh, the pastoral role. We just thank you for the blessing that he is and uh, that you just continue to bless his life and continue to guide him as he leads us. Uh, may we support him and the greatest way is just to pursue being disciples ourselves. We pray that you give wisdom um, as we talk about this area of scripture and may it challenge us to be who you're calling us to be and being salt and light. We thank you for it time together in Jesus name now because context is so critically important when you talk about any kind of any kind of scripture I mean it really is it 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 can't be overstated how important context is and not taking just an area of scripture and trying to make it make it say what we want it to say because you can take area scriptures and you can pull verses out and put them in a specific order and make it say pretty much anything you want it to say um, as, as the, uh, the old pastor used to say, you know, you've got to be careful about context because you know, it was, the, the Bible says that uh, Judas went out and hanged himself. What thou doest, go, you, do, you do the same, and then what you do, you do quickly. Well, I don't think that's exactly the teaching we want, but those are all areas of Scripture that if put together in a certain way gives a very wrong message. But when we t- when, to understand this area of Scripture, we have to understand when it's happening. When it's happening, what the context is, and where it is that Jesus is trying to take this group of people that he's talking to. Now, keep in mind we are we're looking at um, as we've been studying. This is the, this is the Sermon on the Mount. Um, the Beatitudes start the Sermon on the Mount, chapter five, and go all the way through chapter seven. And the Sermon on the Mount is arguably one of Jesus's most famous, most significant, most full treatment of. His teaching kind of anywhere in the in the in the Gospels. It begins in Matthew five, goes through chapter seven, and includes his teaching on things such as hate, lust, loving your enemies, giving to the poor, um, prayer, and in fact, it includes what is the model prayer, which is most often called the Lord's prayer. There's so many areas, so many concepts around the around what it means to be a Christian, what it means to follow Jesus, that come from this area of Scripture. It also contains his teaching on things like fasting, laying up treasure in heaven, worry, judging others, and it includes the presentation of the wide and narrow gates. That is a lot of stuff. That is a lot of stuff that that really has influenced um, our culture in gigantic ways. The Sermon on the Mount is probably one of the most significant influences on Western culture in all of the Bible. And in terms of context, it's also important to understand that Though there was a crowd present, they were on this mountain, it's very clear that there was a crowd present. It specifically says Jesus is speaking to his what? Who's he speaking to? Primarily. His disciples. In fact, this is very early in his ministry. In fact, when you go and you look at the you look at the, the chronology. He, this is very early in the in the disciples relationship with Jesus they've just been called they've just been brought into this they've just been tapped and are still probably in this thing of like oh wow i got the honor of following a rabbi a rabbi called me and when you, so when, you when you look at this Jesus is sitting his disciples down and he's starting the process of introducing his brand new disciples to His rabbi's yoke. This is the very first place that you see him sitting down in a systematic way saying, as Mark often points out, that he says that you've heard it said, but I say to you, this is my, this is what it means to be like me. This is what it means to follow me. This is what it means to understand and believe the things that I believe in and, and advance the things. So what's happening in the Sermon on the Mount is that Jesus as rabbi is laying out for his disciple his manner of life and his teaching and explain what they were to pursue, what it would look like for them to pursue following him, being like him. So when it comes to the metaphors of salt and light, Jesus is explaining to his disciples what their role would be as disciples in becoming like him. And regarding salt, Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything but to be trampled underfoot. Now, read by itself, it's easy to see where some confusion has come in, in terms of understanding what Jesus is saying when he's talking about salt. And because it's really, it's really super important to understand what, what, what he's talking about. When it says salt, because he said, you need to be like that. Well, if we don't understand what that salt is, we're going to draw some very wrong conclusions. And as it turns out, we absolutely have as a church over the course of a bunch of years. But Luke 14 has a parallel section that gives us like the light bulb come on realization of what it is that Jesus is talking about when he's talking about salt. And In Luke 14, it says, verse 34, it says, Salt is good, but if salt has lost its saltiness, how is its saltiness restored? It is no longer either of use to the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away for those who have ears to hear, let him hear. I'm making sure I'm still running. And as I said, it's a, it may be surprising to find out that the thing, how you've been taught about this passage probably is inconsistent with what Jesus is actually talking about here. I say that because in most cases it's, it's different than what I was taught. And it's, the many descriptions I've heard about talking about being the salt of the earth were almost universally based on the concept of the culinary use of salt, salt, pepper, so a salt shaker on our table that we put on our fries before we put on the ketchup. Easily, the most common interpretation of what it means to be salt focuses on the use of salt as a preservative. It's, we look at, well, did the story is we didn't have refrigeration, so we did it, we cured meat with salt, and all this thing with salt because it has to do with how, the, how things were preserved. It, it kept things from rotting. So by application, the teaching goes, we as disciples, we are to be a moral preservative for society. That our Just our presence and our standing up for morality keeps society from rotting. And here in America, that idea has gone to seed and become quite a toxic idea. Not only is it an inaccurate interpretation of what Jesus' message is, but the already wrong idea has been entangled with power structures and politics and is reduced to... Voting the right way, standing up against the right sins, which incidentally is somebody else's instead of mine, and generally being a moral policeman for our culture. How many of you heard this application of this area of scripture? Okay. Just recently I heard a very well known theologian and Bible teacher and pastor saying In an interview that's broadcast to the world, upholding righteousness in a society is what the church is supposed to do. The problem with that is that the Bible never says that literally anywhere. The interpretation of being salt, as we'll see in just a moment, is based on a fundamental misunderstanding of Jesus' entire point for this metaphor. And though and those, there are some of them, the other interpretations that come of this are still based on a culinary view of salt. There's a couple other interpretations you might have heard, like um, salt adds flavor to food, so therefore we as disciples are to add flavor to the world, which is a very poetic thing that speaks very highly of ourselves. Just our presence makes the world better. Um, and the other one that you, that we've often heard is that because salt makes you thirsty, then that our presence makes people thirsty for Christ. That's actually kind of getting close. But the key problem with all of these interpretations of salt is the application that that spring from them is that Jesus isn't referring to salt in a culinary sense. He's not talking about salt on our fries. The misunderstanding has in part been fueled by kind of, so some poor translations and efforts to, to render the phrase, salt loses its saltiness, that it gets, or, or gets translated as salt loses its savor or taste. But the passage in Luke makes it clear that there's something else going on here besides just table salt that we're, that we're shaking on our food. And it's also instructive to realize that when Jesus says what salt is, he says, you are the salt of the what? Salt of the? Salt of the, he did not say, you are the salt of the meat. Right? If he's talking about preserving food, he wasn't talking, he didn't say anything about meat. He said, you are the salt of the, what Jesus is talking about is salt's use in an agricultural sense in that place and time. He's talking about salt used as a fertilizer and a conditioner for the soil to promote the growth of plants to to produce fruit. That is what we're talking about when he's talking about salt. I completely forgot. I was going to actually bring a box of salt and a bag of fertilizer um, and set them aside. He's not talking about this. He's talking about this. And when you understand that, and when when you see that picture and it explains it, in a very literal sense, when Jesus says you are the salt of the earth, he's saying you are the salt of the soil. You are the, you are the ingredient that's helping make the soil good. Now, I love gardening, so this idea speaks very deeply to me. And the parable of the sower that, that Mark read, um, it paints a beautiful picture of the importance of having good soil for gardening success. How many of you have, are, are gardeners? love love being in the dirt, love planting, love seeing things harvested, you know that the single most important aspect of successful gardening is good soil. It's soil that's been prepared. It's soil that's been worked. It's soil that's been amended. It's soil that has been perfectly well prepared, ideally prepared to receive the seed it's going to receive. It's soil that has to be done. All the difference between getting a harvest and not getting a harvest. And salt in, in the first century was key to the possible the possibility of things growing in in their environment. Salt was used directly as a fertilizer for certain crops, as a deterrent for weeds, and it was used to help, watch this, it was used to help manure cure. Have you ever wondered why, as a, when you were thinking about salt being salt to eat on, why Jesus was talking about it being in the manure pile? Not a fan of eating that. Never really understood it until I came across this area of Scripture. What happens? You take green manure and they, it it's salted to help the process of decomposition into compost so that can then be used to amend the soil to great good soil that produces fruit from plants. That's what Jesus is saying when he says you are to be the salt of the earth. That is what we're about. That's what he's calling us to, which all of a sudden, when you start looking at that compared to the parable of the sower and the good soil, it starts creating this very beautiful picture of our role as disciples. When Jesus tells his disciples, you are the salt of the earth, he's telling them that their lives are to be such that their influence that is the quality and the character of their lives, who they are as human beings, how they how they live and work and speak and in a family and jobs and in the grocery store and drive down the road, how the character of who they are would help prepare the hearts of others to facilitate the reception of the truth of God and to Break forth in, in, in growth that generates fruit in the lives of other people. Can somebody say amen? That is what Jesus is talking about when he says you are the salt of the earth. That's the purpose of the salt. And having that influence is literally salt's essence. It's what it is. It's what it is. It's what it was designed to do. It's, an, it's, it's its entire purpose. So unlike what we have been taught that we're to be stand in judgment and condemnation of a culture, and you know, and as used as some kind of deterrent from rot, as if our own self righteousness isn't rot enough. Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. Your lives should be characterized by transformation from who we were born as into my image so that you can therefore to love like me so that other people's hearts notice, are softened, and are prepared by the impact of your life to receive the truth about the kingdom and about me. That is what Jesus is calling us to. That's what he's saying. That is what it is to be salt. And being light in the same way is how it assists others. That's the parallel between these two things. He says your salt and your light. And the point of that is that the, the reason we are these things is for the benefit of other people. It's for the paving of the path, the opening of the door, the preparation of the soil, so that the truth of the kingdom can reach the hearts. Because, folks, there are so many barriers our own fallen self, the influence of the spiritual, the negative spiritual forces, the dark spiritual forces that are very real in our world that we very rarely talk much about in modern era, that are real, the power of society and culture and philosophy that's spawned by these same negative spiritual forces. There are so many barriers to the, the human heart being able to receive the truth of God that Jesus says, this is where you stand in the gap for people you represent me, they see the transformation that happens in you. They see your hope, and their joy, and your peace, and they want that because of the person that you are. And so when Jesus makes the transition to being light, he's talking about the same thing in a way that assists people. And the metaphor of light is often used in Scripture, and Jesus continually refers to himself as the light, which makes total sense. John eight and twelve uh, verse twelve says, He said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Sorry, checking time. John nine five says, As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And John twelve thirty six says, While I have while excuse me, while you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become the sons of light. And in all cases light is presented, watch this. Light is presented as the solution for darkness. That's not just the opposite of it. It's like it's the solution for darkness. It's, 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 what, it's what, how we combat darkness. It's how we push darkness back. And in the Gospels, the focus is on, the light, uh, on light is helping people see. It's the the picture of everything, every time light is used, the point is helping people see. Not in the literal sense, obviously, but in the metaphysical sense of spiritually seeing, spiritually being able to come to the place where the darkness is cleared away, the fallen self is is pushed aside enough that that the light of the truth can come in and illuminate heart. If you've read much of the New Testament, you know that all of that is imagery from the New Testament. That the, that's the picture that you have of light and its application and how it how it's presented. It draws people and drives away darkness so that they can see and desire to enter the kingdom that Jesus demonstrated and invited people into. And in fact, at the very beginning of Matthew, which, by the way, precedes the area of Scripture that we're talking about, um, Jesus in Matthew 4:16 says the people. Or the scripture says the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region of shadow of death, on them light has dawned. And in verse 17, in that same area, it says from that time Jesus began to preach, saying, "Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand." So it's in that context that Jesus says to his first disciples, "You are the light of the world." He's telling them. You represent me. You stand as the example of the difference between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. You stand as a beacon to drive darkness back so that people can be drawn to truth. You are the salt that amends the soil, that helps the manure pile to cure, so that the soil of hearts around you can be prepared, can be amended, can be ready for the truth to be received and to bear fruit in their lives. And the early church got it, y'all. When Paul and Barnabas were preaching in Antioch, they said in Acts 13, So the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. I mean, which is great. And it feels really good, depending upon how you feel about how how you're living out the way of Jesus. Um, It can feel really amazing to say, oh, that's that's all really exciting. But it does leave us with a very practical question of, okay, what does that look like? How exactly am I supposed to approach this thing of being salt and light? How am I, how am I supposed to get there? And thankfully, you know, what does that mean? What does that look like in our world? And thankfully, Jesus didn't leave us to sort it out on our own. He says in verse 14 of the area of Scripture for today, You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light everyone in the house, and watch this, in the same way let your light shine before others that they may, what, see your, can you read, see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. And when you read this passage, you can't help but get the idea that this imagery this influence, this, this shining the light, this being the salt, it, it just feels like what he's presenting is something that ought to be just almost casual in its delivery. You don't get the impression that being salt and light and what Jesus is talking about is, is somehow just like this, uh, like in your face, a front of stuff. Coming at people. It really you get the idea that it's just the natural outflow of our lives, which of course is exactly this point. You are to, as a disciple, are to be like me. I am the light of the world, you be the light of the world by being in character and word and in deed and in heart and in passion and love like me. There's nothing forced about it. You don't get the impression that the intent is to shine a spotlight in people's eyes. Since the whole goal of the light is what? What's the goal of the light? To overcome the darkness so people can what? So they can see. It isn't to shine the light in their and like, see, I've got the light. That the metaphors of both salt and light, the idea is that the influence of our everyday lives, that they, for number one, that they enrich the soil of the world around us in a way that facilitates the possibility for people to enter the kingdom of God. And number two, we exude a light by which others can see the presence and the effect of the kingdom of God in the here and now in everyday life, so that they want it for themselves. Not that we are forcing it on them. Not that we are like like lambasting them and beating them over the head and all those things. No, no. no. The idea is. To be such an influence, to be the salt, to be the preparer of the soil, to be the candle sitting sitting on the lampstand that brings light to the room so that people can see on their own. That's the picture. That's what Jesus is saying. Which is why it is so tragic that these ideas have been misconstrued and essentially turned into the exact opposite of what Jesus was saying in our culture. I find it very instructive that Jesus didn't tell his disciples um, that people would hear what you say you believe and glorify God in heaven. Or that he didn't say people will hear the sin that you condemn and the self-righteousness with which you trumpet it and glorify your God in heaven. Instead, he pointed to the central importance of a life that's transformed, that reflects his own. A life that's characterized by the good works he then expounded upon, watch this, that exhibit the character they're expounded upon in the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. And by extension, the rest of the New Testament. It's the quality of the kingdom life that impacts the world as Jesus intended let me say that again. It's the quality of the kingdom of God infused in and through a life that impacts the world around us, not our not our judgment, not our preaching, not our and, and, and all these things that we want to substitute for salt and light, because it absolves us of the opportunity to actually focus on our own transformation. It's very easy, and the sin nature of fallen self within us loves to heap contempt on others. It, lo- it feels very, very good to, be, to elevate oneself while we're looking down upon other people. That is very normal in religious circles. If you read the, through the Gospels, you see it in spades among the, the religious leaders of Jesus' day. And it's the thing that Jesus points out as the most damnable trait of the entire New Testament. If back and read it. You'd be surprised how often it's that that he focuses on. But it's the quality of the kingdom life within us that impacts um, as Jesus intended. A quality of life that our hope and our character and our priorities are not derived from the priorities or the character or the values of this world, the world system around us, including, watch this, including the religious systems, and the political systems that function in the kingdom of this world. And, and make no mistake, the religion of man and the way that, that is that, that is very much a part of the world. Don't believe that. Go back and see what Jesus says about the religious leaders and the religious system of his day. He says, the world will hate you. They will persecute you. Who is persecuting Jesus? It wasn't wrong it was the religious man's religious system of the day so make most no mistake the enemy loves to use religion to take the gospel and turn it on its head where we are okay so that is what Jesus is calling his disciples to to be salt and light our priority and focus must as believers in our in our modern era especially Shift away from trying to force or legislate some kind of Christian views of morality or whatever on the people around us. Because the fact is, that never works. Right? It never works. In fact, it most often is a serious deterrent to representing the kingdom well. It's kind of like shining your high beams in the eyes of the person driving the opposite direction on the road. Do anybody ever, when someone does that, do you, as anyone, ever go, oh, they're so kind? <laughs> they're shining the light on me. What they, ge- what do you generally do? Yeah, you generally flick your highlights on and tell them they're number one, right? Rather, our focus and commitment <clears throat> must lie in becoming the kind of people whose lives naturally and actually supernaturally draw. People toward the kingdom. It's the Titanic error of the religious culture in America right now, um, of of thinking it's just the opposite. It, the damage that is being done to the kingdom by by this huge contingency of our religious culture who wants to wave Jesus' flag and then communicate in ways that are completely opposite of everything he taught is one of the most tragic um, victories of the enemy I've literally ever seen in 35 years of being a disciple of Jesus. The damage that is being done and the way that it's causing an affront um, is really it's heartbreaking to me. But our call is to be salt and light that draws people to the kingdom. It's the Jesus-like qualities of grace and kindness and compassion and forgiveness and radical love for others, even enemies, who we aren't called to ridicule and lambast and run down and criticize and critique and hold in contempt and make fun of and mock, but to love faithfulness, self-sacrifice, patience, humility, and a host of other things expounded upon throughout the New Testament. Those are the thing that constitutes the character of what it means to be salt and light. That is what makes the impact. That's what amends the soil of the hearts of others. That's what provides light. And it's only to the degree that we actively have those characteristics within us that we're effective as salt and light. And when we don't, we're in the exact condition that Jesus warned against because salt that's lost its saltiness is what? It's worthless. Not, not not only watch the watch the picture that he that he creates. It's not only worthless. What happens to it? It's thrown out onto the path and it's trampled by men. He says it's literally useless and only good to be thrown in the path and trampled, and I, I can't imagine a more poignant picture of where we are in, in, in our culture than that right there, right now. I can't tell you the number of people that we have contact with in our world because we, have, we own a company that's, even though people know that Kim and I are, are passionate disciples of Jesus, it's not a Christian company. And we have a lot of people in our world that are not Christians. And we stay immersed with them because we're trying to do this. But they see what is going on around them. They hear all the all the, all the the things that are being said in Jesus' name. And many have walked, walked with disdain over the idea of Jesus and the kingdom of God because we thought being salt and light, was about telling people how bad they were and standing at a distance and yelling Bible verses at pieces in their general direction. The greatest force for good we can be all, and the greatest gift we could possibly give our world would be to make our highest individual and corporate priorities the nurturing and the development of the character of Jesus within us, to make our own inner transformation our highest priority, that we are reflecting Jesus in everything that we do. We don't have to have a, a wall up and a filter and put on a put on a robe because there's nothing to hide. We're not in any way perfect, but the character comes out. And if you've ever been around people who have that going on, you know it makes you just want to draw in. Does it not? And that folks, is the vision and the call of the entire New Testament. I think I'm out of time. Five minutes. Just think of the impact of millions of disciples who prioritize their pursuit of personal transformation into the image of Christ over everything else in their life. Imagine the impact of a group of people who overwhelmingly and unwaveringly live from the source of love Jesus called us to. A love that is patient with people and that's continually kind. If we were people who didn't allow themselves to envy or be jealous, or who didn't brag or boast, or who weren't proud or arrogant, especially about things of faith and our own righteousness, if we were people who didn't insist on their own way. If we, if we weren't irritable or resentful or contemptuous, if we didn't rejoice in evil, even it's when it's under the guise of religiosity, but instead we were people who rejoiced with the truth, even when that truth wasn't convenient and didn't fit our preferences or our desires. That is, by the way, just 1 Corinthians 13. Description of what love is. And Jesus says, By this, all men will know that you are my disciples because not you stand and you preach and you yell and you condemn this group and that group and you know, lift up this candidate and put down that candidate and do this and do that. Banging gong, clanging cymbal. He says, No, no. It's loving like that. And it's really, that is the summation of everything the rest of the New Testament expounds upon regarding loving others. Stop and imagine for a second the influence and the impact of the average disciple of America if their lives were characterized by that list. What would that look like? What would home be like? What would workplaces be? What would our conversations be like? What would social media be like? What would the atmosphere of our nation be like? My greatest prayer for the body of Christ, rather than pointing fingers at others or lamenting the condition of the world, oh my God, it's going to hell in a handbasket, is that we would truly understand the greatest impact that we could have on our world would be to become the kind of people that are like Jesus, that love Jesus, like Jesus, who don't allow the fallen self that's resident with all of them to drive the bus of their lives, regardless of what religious cloak it's wearing. Because make no mistake, that is what's happening in our religious culture today. It has nothing to do with Jesus, no matter how loudly they want to blow the trumpet or wave the flag. All you got to do is look at the fruit. My greatest prayer is that we would understand the greatest impact we can have on our world is to become the kind of people that Jesus calls us to be and to commit to that process of personal transformation as our greatest goal in life. And a word really it's the term I use in my uh, teaching ministry called 21st Century Disciple. Our, our catchphrase, is to be, to, it, our goal is to become Jesus with skin on for a hurting world. Y'all... In the midst of all of this place and this time when so much loud yelling about Jesus and about rights and about this and about that that's happening and so many people are being turned off to the kingdom, the number of people who are searching, who are hurting, who need to see the truth of Jesus is only escalating. And it's part of the place where it makes me so angry that the enemy gets to win in all of this. We have been called to whatever's going going on there. My call is to be salt in how I live. My my call is to be light in every single aspect of my life, whether it's convenient for me or not, whether I like it or not, whether it's the thing that's going to make me most comfortable or not. Because most often it's not going to be. But I think we are in a place where we can have the most incredible impact True impact, not just building big churches and make more people sit in pews and all of that crap. I'm talking about impact in the lives of people where they move from darkness to light, where they become a passionate disciple of Jesus and their world is changed, their eternity is changed, their, their, their lives are altered because of the goodness and love of God. That's what we're called to facilitate. That is what salt is. That is what light is. And I pray that we would pursue that. And I feel like um, under Mark's leadership, and especially these past year or so, we are we're we're zoned right in on that, and that makes me really happy. Lord bless you guys. hope you have an incredible week. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for the time together, for all that you do. You are immensely patient in our stumbling, and in our uh, battle against the enemy, and a battle against the fallen self within that loves to parade in religious robes may you sensitize us to its movements that we can live beyond it in the power of the Holy Spirit and to pursue being salt and light in our world. I pray that you continue to bless Mark as he leads us and other leaders within our journey. May we draw together and spur each other on to life and godliness that we can be the people in the world that give hope and uh, introduce the kingdom to those who are seeking. In Jesus' name, amen. Lord bless you all. See you.